Good morning, everybody. As we go into God's word, let's start with prayer. Lord, thank you that you speak to us in your word because you love us. Help us to hear you today and to love you back. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start today, I want to start with a question. What's the biggest thing you have ever waited for? As you think over your life, what have been, what has that, what was that moment you most anticipated and looked forward to? For children, Christmas is a great example. An idea of weeks of waiting for a day of presents and food and celebration. As we get older, we may think of other examples, perhaps a wedding day after months of planning, finally getting to start life with our best friend. Or we may be waiting for something such as a clear medical screening, either for ourselves or for someone we love. And after all the treatment, all the illness, all the battles, is it finally done? As we think about that moment of what we've waited for, we can also remember the day that it came. We celebrate with friends and family. It's exciting. We finally reached the day. Then it's tomorrow. Then it's next week. Life keeps moving after the wait is over. And we can wonder, now what? Now, Advent is a wonderful time of waiting. We remember that Israel and God's people were waiting for the coming of a deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus. And on Christmas Day, we celebrate the coming of Jesus as a baby. And it's exciting. He's finally here. Then it's December 26th. Soon it's January 1st. On the first Christmas, Jesus is still a baby. Darkness is still in the world. We can wonder with the members of the first Christmas who are looking at this child who's growing in the normal way. Now what? This passage, Luke chapter 2, shows what God expects us to do in light of his faithfulness in sending Jesus. God offers exemplars to show us what we are to do in the here and now. We'll learn from Mary and from Joseph, but we'll also learn from two others who make guest appearances in this passage. They will show us three things that we can do in light of God's faithfulness. Since God is faithful, we follow him with joy. Since God is faithful, we mourn with hope. And since God is faithful, we tell others. First, since God is faithful, we follow him with joy. Let's consider Mary and Joseph and their journey, raising Jesus. They follow God's will from day one. First, Mary names her son Jesus, which is the name that the angel commanded her to give. Since Jesus means he saves, his very name is a reminder of God's faithfulness to send a deliverer, a savior. Next, we see Joseph and Mary follow a number of Old Testament laws right from the beginning. First, they circumcise Christ on the eighth day, which is the time that God told Abraham um, to give circumcision for himself and then for all of his descendants. Second, 
we see in this chapter, in this passage, they come to the temple to offer a sacrifice of purification. In Leviticus chapter 12, God's people were commanded to bring a sacrifice of purification after each child was born. Ideally, everyone was supposed to bring a lamb to sacrifice, a pure, spotless offering. It's interesting. If you look in verse 24, though, what we see is when they bring a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, it says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If a lamb is the ideal, why are they bringing two birds? What we learn in Leviticus 12 is God says that if someone can't afford a lamb, he has given them an alternative. It's okay to bring two birds instead, which is much more affordable. From this passage, we can infer that Mary and Joseph are probably quite poor. Let's also remember that they are newlyweds and new parents. So in the middle of financial difficulties, likely sleepless nights, and trying to find housing while they're away now in Jerusalem, they're facing a lot of difficulty. And even so, they continue to follow the Lord. Third, Mary presents Jesus as her firstborn son. Look in verse 23. It says that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In this verse, Luke is quoting Exodus chapter 13. Now, why do people have to offer a sacrifice for a firstborn son? They are remembering that God saves his people. Remember that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for centuries, and they cried out to God for help. God sent a deliverer through Moses, and he saved his people. He sent a series of plagues on Egypt to show that he is the true God who should be listened to. But Egypt refused to let Israel go. So God sent a final plague that would kill the firstborn sons in Egypt. But God provided a way of deliverance. He said that for every family could offer a lamb as a sacrifice. And if they offered that sacrifice, God would spare their children. After Israel was freed from Egypt, God gave this command that every time someone has a firstborn child they should offer a sacrifice to remember God giving them freedom. Now, more than a thousand years after God gave that command, we see Mary bringing her firstborn son to the temple in obedience to this law. She's remembering that God is their deliverer. Now, from our perspective, we can marvel at what's happening here because we know who Jesus is. He is not only Mary's firstborn son, he's also the son of God who is being offered, and he will be the deliverer for everyone. Now, Mary and Joseph are not the only ones who are following God with joy in this text. Next, we meet one of these guests who only appears in this passage. We meet Simeon. Verse 25 describes him as righteous and devout. We also learn something surprising, that the Holy Spirit is upon him. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he will see the consolation of Israel. Pay attention to that word, consolation. It's from the Greek word, paraklesen. You may have heard the word paraclete before, same root word. Paraclete means helper. Simeon's been told God's going to send help. And Simeon's been waiting for that help likely most of his life. And now the Holy Spirit says, the wait is over. Go to the temple you'll see the helper. 
and he's pointed to a baby. Simeon responds with joy. He walks over to Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus, and he scoops Jesus up in his arms, and he begins to make these proclamations over Jesus. You can see in the text that his words are offset. In the Bible, when you see words offset in this way, that often means there's a proclamation being made, and often it's a proclamation that is sung. So Simeon is basically singing with joy over Jesus. And he starts to make several grand statements. The, the really neat thing to know is it's, he's not just simply an optimistic older man making unrealistic expectations for the next generation. As he's speaking, he is referencing several Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah. Now, if he's talking about Jesus, why is he using the words of Isaiah? It'll help to set a little context of when Isaiah was speaking. So Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus lived. And he lived in a very dark time of Israel's history. The majority of Israel have looked at the nations around them and said, we want what they have. And began, in turn, to follow the gods and idols of other nations. And as they worship, God compares idol worship to a spouse having an affair. What Israel was doing was breaking relationship with God. And Israel was going to face judgment for their infidelity. But as God does, he also promised that he would send a deliverer. He said that he would send someone called his servant. Who is this person? And he said this person will redeem Israel. But God also said he will go above and beyond if you look in your worship guide on page 11, we have two prophecies from Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. It says here, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God promises that he will save Israel. But he basically says in this passage, that's too easy. His salvation will be global. Where Isaiah speaks of a light for the nations, now in Luke 2, verse 31, Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and calls him a light for revelation to the Gentiles or to non-Jewish nations as well as to Israel. Now also look at Isaiah 56, verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. God said he would send salvation. Now Simeon could have doubted God. He had faced Roman oppression for his entire life, and Israel had waited centuries for God to save them. He could have turned his back on God, but instead, he followed this passage from Isaiah and lived a life characterized as righteous and devout. Now, near the end of his life, he sees Jesus and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. He rejoices that God is faithful. Now, as I read through this passage and think about following God with joy, I wonder what does it look like to follow God with joy today? A person who came to mind as a friend named Jim. He's a pastor who leads a church in downtown Indianapolis. He sees God's heart for the poor and oppressed in his community 
he sees that in the surrounding neighborhood, there is a lot of poverty and addiction. And so he reaches out in different ways and prayed for, Lord, how are you leading me to serve in this community? As a result, with teaming up with people in his church, he has started an addiction recovery group, a food pantry, and a church school. He also partnered with local medical students and their supervisors to open a free medical clinic here in the city in order to care for the needs of the community. Now, all of these programs have come with hardship, whether it be financial difficulty or illness or damage to the church building. And in the midst of all of this, every time I speak with Jim, his demeanor is one of joy and wonder, where he often tells me, I don't know how we're going to do this, but God will provide. And he always does. These programs continue. And Jim continues to point me to the faithfulness of God. So today, we also ought to live as those called to the gospel of peace. We know that God gives us grace through Christ. Now God calls us to give grace to those around us, to our families when they upset us, to our co-workers when they disrespect us. We can choose to respond with patience and to seek peace, knowing that God treats us in the same way. As we struggle through this everyday obedience, we can find comfort and guidance by looking to our spiritual ancestors who set the example. They model obedience to God, but they also model joy. Wait, we might think. How do I rejoice? There are so many hardships that I face, it's just hard to be joyful at all. This brings us to our second point of how we can respond to God with faithfulness. Since God is faithful, we mourn with hope. Now, in the passage, what we've seen is Mary, Joseph, and Simeon see the baby Jesus and respond with joy. Nobody's weeping in this passage. So why the idea of mourning? Let's consider the context. Mary, Joseph, and Simeon face circumstances that are difficult for us to imagine. Now, remember, Simeon was rejoicing because he saw the consolation or the helper for Israel. Now, he's rejoicing because Israel needs help. That's why he's excited. Now, what kind of help do they need? The biggest problem, external circumstance that they're facing is Roman occupation. The Jewish people have faced oppression and discrimination for decades. Some of the ways that this has manifested is through unfair taxation or highly limited rights. Also, remember for Mary and for Joseph, the story of King Herod is about to happen soon after this passage. King Herod will try to kill Jesus as a perceived threat to his throne. Mary and Joseph will have to flee for their lives and for the life of their son. As when under Egyptian oppression, Israel was mourning as they pleaded to God for help. Today, we mourn too. There is still death and darkness and destruction today. Now, this is despite government programs, not-for-profit organizations, and our best intentions. We still see discrimination, starvation, trafficking. We see abuses of power and war crimes. In our very own neighborhoods, we see polite indifference to the suffering of the person next door. And we can wonder, when will this end? But both today and in the first century, we realize that evil persists not only in those external circumstances, such as empires. Evil is inside of each person. 
Back in the first century, the Roman authorities sinned systematically through oppression. But many of the Jewish people also turned and rejected God. Remember that as Jesus grows up, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones who should most easily recognize him, hold him in their arms and say, here he is, the Messiah. Those religious leaders spearhead the opposition to Christ. Now, Simeon himself foreshadows that Jesus will not be accepted by everyone. Look in verses 34 and 35 as he speaks to Mary. It says here, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. I can't imagine hearing this message. For the mothers in the room, imagine someone walking up to you and your child, blessing you, and then saying, there will be great opposition to your child. That doesn't feel like a blessing. I would feel really upset because we want the best for our children, not opposition. Then imagine the stranger goes on and says, the opposition to your child will be so great, it feels like a sword is running through you. It is so alarming to hear these words. Now, many commentators believe Simeon is pointing forward to Jesus' death on the cross, the culmination of human opposition. Scripture tells us that Mary was present at that public execution. While Mary would see Jesus spread hope to thousands, she would also see him rejected by Rome and his own people. We know that this rejection continues today. While God's salvation is offered to all people, not all will accept it. Many people today, people we know, rationalize God away or excuse themselves from God's standards. While in some circumstances, people may feel free or justified when ignoring God's word, what scripture shows us is the result of rejecting God is always darkness. And we can't avoid the fact that darkness isn't limited to the most hurtful people in our lives. We mourn the darkness that's around us in culture, but we also mourn the darkness that's inside of us. As we think about our times of confession, we know that at times we reject God's will. We lie. We're unfaithful. We seek our own pleasure above God's glory or we neglect the needs of others in the name of financial prudence. At times, we choose darkness, and we mourn that darkness that we cannot escape. In this context, we see that Jesus' coming isn't simply a nice visit from an inspirational teacher. We need Jesus. Jesus came to defeat a bigger threat than in any empire, He came to fight darkness in all times and all places. Now, throughout Israel's history, the darkness of evil has been paid for by a sacrifice. Now we can guess why Simeon is not disappointed when the Holy Spirit brings him to the temple to find a helper and points him to a baby instead of to a military leader. We know that he is coming and that the world needs a sacrifice that restores what has been broken. Jesus is that savior that our world needs. He would grow into the man who is the perfect sacrifice, 
Not only the firstborn of Mary, but God's son willingly given for his people. What an incredible cost. It takes the life of God's only son to overcome evil. Now, what's the suffering you see in your life and in the lives around you? We mourn as many live in ways that ignore God and hurt others. But we don't mourn without hope. We know that our Savior has come. And we know that because of witnesses like Simeon who told us and their words are written down. We also know that Jesus will come again. So since God is faithful, we follow him with joy. Since God is faithful, we mourn with hope, knowing that there's still darkness in the world. But Jesus came to our dark world, and now we can reach to him with hope. Finally, since God is faithful, we tell others. We already saw Simeon surprise Mary and Joseph by telling them and confirming the words of the angel that God, that Jesus will be their savior. Now we have a second person. Let's meet Anna. We don't know much about her, but we do know her character. We know that after she lost her husband, she continued to trust that hardship to God and dedicated her life to prayer and fasting in the temple. She knew God would take care of her. We also learn an interesting detail about her. She's a prophetess. Throughout history, God has used prophets to declare God's words to God's people. That's the job of a prophet. Now, she declares the good news. Look in verse 38. It says here, In coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, since Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel and is the center of worship, we can infer that the redemption of Jerusalem and the consolation of Israel that Simeon talked about is the same thing. She knows that Jesus is coming to save. And she shares with, uh, with the others in the temple that God has sent help through the baby Jesus. Now, as we consider the story as a whole, it's a treasure in its simplicity. We admire Simeon and Anna for their lives of faith, but there isn't really anything showy going on in this story. There's no miraculous healing. There's no shining light from heaven. Instead, what we see is people who live for God and wait on him. This should be really encouraging to us because we know that God's love isn't limited to dramatic heroes of the faith. Anna and Simeon are only featured in this story of the Bible, and it's at the very end of their lives. But they're honored for their entire lifetimes of regular Faithful commitment to the Lord. God uses ordinary people to proclaim his extraordinary work. Simeon and Anna are early missionaries. They're spreading the news of rescue to the people waiting for redemption. And they're not the only ones. They speak here in verse 38 to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There are other people waiting for God to redeem all things. So if we could identify with anyone in this story, we most identify with this unnamed group of waiting people. Like them, we also are looking to the future for help. Now, a few things are different. We rejoice because we already have the redemption bought by Jesus. We know the story. Jesus will grow into the man who pays the penalty for our sins. 
He has already given us redemption from sin. He has already sent the Holy Spirit who will be with us and who will teach us. But we experience a new kind of waiting today. We know that this redemptive process isn't done. Jesus will come back, as he said, to finish the work of redeeming the world. So, like Simeon and Anna, our waiting is still active. We worship and pray and fast and we tell others. We know that God is the primary mover of redemption, but since we are made in the image of God, we are invited into his work to join him. Now, what's it look like to join God in his work today? A person who came to mind is Miss Love. That is her actual last name. I met her on a church service trip in St. Louis. She lives in a rough neighborhood with many residents who suffer from the effects of redlining and from discrimination. Surrounding her house were abandoned buildings and drugs and prostitution. And for years, Miss Love prayed for her neighborhood knowing God didn't want things to stay that way. She wanted to share God's love and renewal with the people around her. So first, she bought the abandoned lots across from her house and turned them into a community garden. And people from the community flocked there to plant flower beds and vegetables and to have a place of beauty and dignity. Over time, she started to buy some of the abandoned buildings on her street, and she provided affordable housing for people who needed it. Now the surrounding community flocks to Mrs. Love's garden and to her home, and it's neat to see people regularly sitting on the steps of her front porch. And while they're sitting there, they hear about the love of Christ. But they also see his care through Miss Love. So... Let's think about us today. When we think about telling others of Jesus, at least for me, the first image that comes to mind is missionaries going overseas. But often, we're called to tell the people right next to us. God used Miss Love to transform a city block, about 500 feet of city road. So this week, I want to challenge you. Think about the 500 feet outside your front door, or the 500 feet around your workplace. Who in that space does not yet have a relationship with Jesus? As people come to mind, I encourage you to pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus with them. God will open the doors. Now, we know from this story that God sent Jesus on the first Christmas. But what about us today? We rejoice because God already offers us forgiveness through Christ. Since Jesus pays any disobedience we commit against God, we have a relationship with peace with our Heavenly Father, and we can call him our Father. Let's celebrate that fellowship long after Christmas is over. Also, we know that when Jesus comes back, he will end suffering, heaven will come to earth, and evil will be defeated. There will be a time this process reaches its end. In the meantime... We rejoice in our fellowship with Jesus, and we share the good news with others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get to know you and that you love us. Thank you that you are still working in the, in the middle of this time when we see all the mess. You're right here with us. Please be with us this week and help us to faithfully follow you, and may that joy burst out of us 
to the people around us so that we can't help but share about you. In Jesus' name, amen.